Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hello, Deep State Radio listeners. To celebrate the launch of our new login and feed management system, we are offering membership for just $5 per month or $50 per year. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, an invitation to the DSR Slack community, an ad-free listening experience, a nightly newsletter version of the DSR Daily Brief podcast, and more. To take advantage of this offer, please visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. There is no need to enter a promo code. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy. Thank you very much. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from someplace not too far from New York City. I am joined by our friend Ian Bremer, who has a new book, The Power of Crisis. We have three threats, and our response will change the world. It's an important new book with a, a kind of constructive future-looking perspectives on big issues like uh, climate change, data, the dysfunction of the, I mean, you know, uh, the, the digital revolution, AI, and uh, the dysfunction of of global institutions and and how we might get them back on track. So I'm real glad to have you back here, Ian, to talk about this and maybe a little bit about what's going on in the world. Congratulations on the book. Thank you, Dave. As you know, you never know how these things are going to land, but so far, so good. So I'm happy about it, and I'm glad to be talking. Well, it seems well-timed to me because we are at a moment of dysfunction. We're at a moment of dysfunction in the United States. You make reference to that in the book, where our... uh, our polity isn't working the way it's supposed to. Clearly, there's conflict around the world. And that dysfunction is making it harder for us to deal with the big issues we face, whether it's, as, as you point out, climate crisis or the places where the world is changing so fast, we don't even have the institutional structures to deal with it, like you know issues like cyber or digital privacy-related issues, big data issues, and so forth. Why did you write this book now? Well, I mean, I've written basically for the last 20 years about various ways that the global order has been coming apart, right? I'm the G-Zero guy. I wrote about the end of the free market. I wrote about the failure of globalism. I mean, those are all different parts of the same element. It's basically saying that our geopolitical order is not aligned with our institutions. And what that means, of course, is you end up with a lot more crises. So this is the book that basically says, out of all those crises, aren't there the seeds for the new global order? Aren't there the seeds for reforming and recreating our international framework so that it functions in the 21st century? It's a a very simple conceit 
for someone who's fundamentally a pretty upbeat and hopeful guy. Yeah, but as you say, you've been the, the G0 guy and you pointed out the cracks in the system. And of the books of yours that I've read, I've read a bunch of them, this seems to be the most optimistic, you know, in the sense that you, you really do, I think, make a good case that either these crises motivate us to some sort of action to remake the international order or else, right? And, and that may not sound optimistic, but it's not just or else, right? I mean, I, I think, and also you've got some very interesting ideas in there about what some of these new institutions might look like. Maybe you can walk us through where you think each of the three crises could take us. And the thing is, some of them are already happening. So, I mean, I, this book, it, it, so frequently, I will tell you, you know, you, you know what it's like. You, write, you finish a manuscript, you submit it to your editors, and then they, tell, they push you. And in my case, they frequently push me to say, okay, okay, so it's going to be G0, but what's the solution? What are we going to do about it? And I, I haven't given them a lot of solutions because for me, G0 was overdetermined. It was obvious we were heading into a period of non-polarity, that leadership was going to erode and fragment. And so I, I'm not someone who's prepared to give solutions if they can't happen. And I actually start in this book with you know, 40, 50 pages about some stipulating that, hey, I can tell you how the U.S. can become more functional as a political system, but we know it's not going to happen in the next five, 10 years. I can give you some ways that we'll have a Kumbaya G2 moment with the Chinese, but we know that's not going to happen either. And so the solutions that I have to give you must be solutions that can be implemented within the context of those constraints. And it turns out that those things exist. And, you know, sometimes you fail and sometimes you succeed. But when I look at the pandemic and when I look at climate, the climate crisis, when I look at the Russia-Ukraine invasion over the last hundred plus days, I see in all three of those lessons that have been learned, some good, some not so good, but they clearly show this capacity to use these crises to reform and remake. And the disruptive technologies is the one that we haven't done it yet, but we need to. And given our experience with these other crises, I think I have some fairly practical advice. Yeah, I think you do. I mean, and one of the, the bigger ideas in there with regard to disruptive technologies, I think is what you call a world data organization, world digital organization, kind of WTO for bits and bytes. And, you know, it seems a long way off, but there really is no way to deal with privacy, cybersecurity, all the, all the issues associated, AI and 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 setting certain ground rules for that without some multilateral mechanism. You can't do it bilaterally, right? It's pretty obvious what the basic framework needs to be. So obvious that it's kind of shocking that no one's really talking about it. Because when you and I were coming of age, we were really concerned about nuclear proliferation. So concerned that even though the Americans and Soviets wanted to destroy each other, wanted to defeat each other, we recognized that we needed to talk to each other about that issue and we needed to contain the, the dangers. And furthermore, that we needed a strong regime that prevented 
those technologies from proliferating in the hands of all sorts of countries around the world and non-state actors and terrorists. And frankly, over the last 80 years, we've done a reasonable job on that count, right? I mean, we could have done a lot worse. So a lot of the a lot of the analysts, international analysts, assumed that nuclear proliferation, once the genie was out of the bottle, everyone was going to have nukes and the world was going to become a much more dangerous place. So in the 21st century, we've got these offensive cyber weapons and we have AI algorithms that create deep fakes and disinformation that you can't actually distinguish from real people and real information. You've got lethal autonomous drones. You have even things that are more exotic like bioweapons and like quantum computing. And it's very, very clear that we don't want those disruptive technologies to proliferate in the hands of rogue states and non-state actors and terrorists. Like it's clear. And, and yet we haven't begun. The Americans and the Chinese aren't even talking about how we would contain the proliferation of those technologies. And before you get to a world data organization, you need something even more basic that I think we can do. You need an intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence. You need the equivalent of what we have already done on climate change. That in the last few decades, we've created a, a group and it's state actors and non-state actors, it's scientists and it's public policy types and it's bureaucrats. And 195 countries get together and by God, we all now agree that there's 1.2 degrees centigrade of climate change. We agree what the problem is. We may not agree on how much money we wanna like allocate towards fixing it, but we agree on what the problem is. And what that does, of course, is it means that even if you don't trust other people, anything you do is gonna be rowing in the direction towards the solution. So the Americans and the Chinese don't cooperate on climate, but when we see the Chinese investing in renewable technologies, we say, my God, we don't want them to be the superpower, we better start doing it. So it's, compet it's competitive, but it's virtuous competition. It's obvious that we have to start with a group, a global group that identify what are the nature of these disruptive technologies? Which could be could we create defenses against? Which are just offensive technologies that you have to contain? Which are the top priorities and how fast do they develop? And who are the actors that are most dangerous? And once you define the landscape, then you can figure out, okay, which of these components can you start to work on and with which actors? I mean, climate change, it's not like everyone's working together on climate change. You've got a biodiversity group and you've got an anti-deforestation group and you've got a methane group and you've got a carbon group and you've got an investing in new technologies group. And of course, in all of that, some of it works really well and some of it doesn't work well. But first, you've got together to find the problem. And honest to God, we can get together in the next three years and create an intergovernmental panel on artificial intelligence. We can do this. We can align the world to define the problem. And as an analyst, as a political scientist, you can see why that appeals to me in the way you start to respond is first you define the problem. But you have to get people to agree to that. And I think, you know, this is, you know, I, I, I read the book and kept thinking of Winston Churchill's line about the United States in which he says, you can count on us to do the right thing after we've exhausted all the other alternatives, right? And the reality is that's kind of the story, not of just the U.S., but of all of human progress. We kind of screw stuff up. It gets to a crisis. 
and sooner or later, you know, we, we have to take some kind of a step. But there tends to be something that facilitates that step. And so with the creation of the international community, you talk, for example, about a green Marshall Plan. And, you know, with regard to the creation of the international community, the, green Mar- the, the Marshall Plan, this occurred at a unique moment, which was the end of the Second World War, when there was a victor. It was total victory. One country, the U.S., was the locust for 45% of all world trade. And essentially, we could dictate the terms. And so we built a strut. Now, we didn't you know, dictate all the terms, but we were able to drive that. We're particularly when you take something like uh, data or climate, we're, we're not in that place yet, right? Because there's a European view of privacy, an American view of privacy, a Chinese view of privacy. Europeans and Americans think that the internet is a commercial realm or a public good. The Chinese and you know, a bunch of other states see it as a state realm controlled by the state. And I can go through this. You talk about kind of deforestation police force in the book. Well, you know, everybody thinks deforestation is bad with the exception of, you know, Bolsonaro. But if you're going to have a police force, somebody's got to agree to the terms and let them in. And we don't seem to be quite at that. It seems to me these all are good ideas that require kind of serial tipping points. How do you? They require crises. They require crises. That's exactly right. I mean, NATO was falling apart and adrift until Putin. And we weren't putting real money into renewables to dramatically shift the course of our energy consumption in the world until it started hitting California and Florida and Australia and Italy. It couldn't just be about Bangladesh and saving the whales. But it's interesting. And the good news story on climate is that we are heading to 1.5 to 2.5 degrees of total warming before we hit net zero and tar- start taking carbon out of the atmosphere. Like that, that's the range. It's not four or five or six degrees, which activists were talking about realistically even 10 years ago, because there has been incredible shift of resource allocation from the Europeans and from the banks and from the corporates and from the NGOs and increasingly from the Americans and the Chinese even. Now, the difference between 1.5 and 2.5, which is hundreds of trillions of dollars in cost to the planet and to the global economy if we don't get it right, and hundreds of millions of lives in the balance. So there's a big difference between 1.5 and 2.5. The difference is, are we the rich people, are we the Americans going to treat the Indians as human beings? It's that simple. It's that simple. And you're right that absent a catalyst that gets us to a Marshall Plan like World War II, we might not get there. I mean, if you made me right now say, okay, honest to God, Ian, where are we going to be between 1.5 and 2.5? I'm probably on the 2.2, 2.3 is where we go. We could be doing so much better. And that's why you have the Secretary General and John Kerry and others continuing to like, you know, sort of sound the alarm and we only have like another decade and we have to do more precisely because I don't think the amount of spend that would be required long term from the Americans to the Brazilians to say, yeah, we're going to actually help you pay to avoid deforestation. We're going to help you 
avoid rolling blackouts when it's 120 degrees Fahrenheit in Delhi and no one can work after 10 a.m. because it's dangerous for you outside. We're actually going to commit to that. I think that we're probably going to do much less of that than is required. But even a 2.2 degree response is because we are responding to this crisis. We are. And we, we need to we need to be analytic about that. We need, we need to recognize that this has moved us. As we're analytic about it, you know, and as we break it down, whether we're talking about a pandemic or we're talking about green issues or we're talking about digital issues, each one is a welter of complex driving factors. But there is one driving factor that is a particularly worrisome to me, and that is that the most powerful nation in the world is as dysfunctional as it is. And, you know, you take climate and the last administration in the United States, its policy was screw the climate, drill, dig. We don't believe this. You know, I'm not sure we, you know, they're, you know, the IPCC and 98% of all the scientists on the planet Earth agree that the climate crisis is real. But the president was like, yeah, I'm not so sure. And if we go back and forth from that, from believing it to not believing it every four or eight years, it's hard to see how the world gets there. And the U.S. reverses itself. If we go back and forth, yeah, go on. I'm more optimistic than you on that. Um, because when Trump came in, the first thing he did was remove the U.S. from the Paris Climate Accord. And, and literally every other country around the world opposed that move. It's hard to do something that so many countries are united in opposing. It was an obscenity for him to do that. Of course it was. And it flew in the face of science. And yet, and yet, the Americans maintained their commitment to the Paris Climate Accord in reality because governors and mayors and CEOs and concerned citizens and Mike Bloomberg and everybody else all said, no, this is important. We're going to keep doing it. So it turned out that Trump didn't matter that much to the long term outcome. The momentum was sufficiently great. And I think one of the things that gives me more a more hopeful lens, not a determinative optimistic lens, but a more hopeful lens, is the fact that I actually believe that the next global order is increasingly post-Westphalian. In other words, I don't think that central governments are doing nearly as much of the driving in the creation of the next set of institutions as the monopoly power that they wielded coming out of World War II. And I think that's true for climate. I think it's true for disruptive technologies. It's even true for Russia, Ukraine. It's so interesting. The war didn't start on February 24th. It started on the 23rd in Seattle, Washington, when the Russians launched their cyber attacks against the Ukrainian servers that Microsoft was actually hosting. And Elon Musk and Starlink and Google and Microsoft have been belligerents and antagonists in this war, just like NATO, and that they've not been coordinating with NATO really at all. I think it's really one of the interesting things that comes out of this book is just how important actors that are not Washington and Beijing turn out to be in responding to these crises. Yeah, well, you know, sure. And I, I, I got some problems with the Westphalian order. You know, the Treaty of Westphalia was back when I was in high school and uh, the mid middle of the 17th century. But the reality is, for all their defects, states at least theoretically act in, on behalf of their people, right? Theoretically. Big corporations never do. 
they act in on behalf of their shareholders. And you know, when if if there's a void created at the state level, the next people up are not scientists and innovators. The next people up are big corporations looking out after their product. Doesn't that doesn't that worry you? It worries me immensely. And the idea that the digital space is technopolar and a small number of individuals are able to create sovereign entities in that field is deeply dystopian. But at the global level, what we're talking about is a decentralization of power. It's not that corporations are running everything or banks are running everything or governments are running everything or people or NGOs. It's that a multiplicity of actors actually have a lot more influence. And therefore, when the United States, the most powerful single actor in the world, is deeply dysfunctional and very short term, it turns out there are ways of getting around that. And by the way, a lot of the ways of getting around that are also governmental actors, just not at the national level. I mean, it's very clear that red versus blue is becoming much more problematic in the US. But what that means is that a lot of your policy results are coming out of California or Texas. I mean, both of those states, one blue, one red, have done far more in advancing the climate policy dialogue globally than Washington has, than Congress has. I think that's a useful thing. So yeah, I mean, if the United States still had the political system and comparative function and legitimacy that we had 30 years ago, I might be less of a cheerleader for a more fragmented global order. But given where we are right now, I actually believe that these next institutions are going to be more multi-stakeholder. And by the way, one of those stakeholders is one that you and I agree is very responsible on the global stage, and that's the European Union. And one of the big takeaways from this book is the EU doesn't get enough credit. The EU came out of the pandemic stronger and more unified than it came in because of the pandemic. The US government came out weaker and more divided. And I think that's also true coming out of the Russia invasion of Ukraine. I mean, you did see a Marshall Plan inside Europe redistributing massive wealth between the wealthy countries and the poorer countries that you never would have seen during the Eurozone crisis in 2008, 2009, 2010. And you also, they, were, they took them longer to get vaccines than Operation Warp Speed. But when they got them and they distributed them, it was across all the EU. That was a new power that the Europeans vested in the bureaucracy, a supranational bureaucracy that fundamentally cares about things like privacy and rule of law and isn't captured by special interests on the corporate side the way the American policy process really is. And for China, that's kind of irrelevant. So, I mean, the fact that the EU is a bigger part of this story through the chapters in my book, I consider a hopeful thing. None of this guarantees you that you're going to be able to get there, but it gives you a better shot. And I feel that many of those that have written about these issues from a Washington lens over the last decades have overemphasized the role of Washington, and if not just Washington, the role of Washington and Beijing. And as both of those things, U.S. domestically and U.S. China, become more dysfunctional, you obviously become much less hopeful in any possibility of a solution. Well, I'm suggesting that there's kind of a third way that's emerged. You know, I, I strongly agree with you, and I was actually going to lead the discussion there as we're sort of in our final minutes, because as I was reading the book, 
one of the things that struck me was, and I say this in a complimentary way, was how European the perspective was, in the sense that it was closer to the thinking of innovative and successful European leaders than it is American, Chinese, Indian, Russian, et cetera, leaders. And it, it reminded me that when I was in the Clinton administration, I remember being in a meeting in the Roosevelt Room in the White House when a senior public official, and I won't name his name, but he later became the president of Harvard, said, Europe is a museum. He's, you know, this was the, in the, the 90s view. Europe is over. And yet, a few years later, I, when I wrote a book about sort of the post-Cold War era, which was kind of also the post-end of history era, the conclusion I drew was not at the end of the battle between communism and capitalism was that communism lost and capitalism won, and it was over, but that rather we were into a new era where there were competing capitalisms, and there was Anglo-American capitalism, and there was capitalism with Chinese characteristics, and there was small state capitalism. But the one that looked like it was actually gaining traction was European capitalism, particularly Northern European capitalism, where the social contract was a little balanced, where there was, you know, you somehow managed to have fiscal responsibility and a social safety net and thriving companies and innovation and concern for the environment and so forth. And I don't know, it, it just seemed to me as I was reading the book, I was like, these ideas are, are winning. We buried Europe too soon. Well, there are a lot of things that we are obviously, we Americans are fantastic at. And Lord knows our capacity for entrepreneurship and innovation, the strength of our banks, the dollar reserve currency, all of this stuff. But the Europeans today, I believe, are actually more committed to the importance of international institutions and of rule of law than the Americans in a big way. And I think at a time that it's obvious that we have a deficit of those globally, we're going to have to look to the Europeans for more of those ideas. I mean, the Americans, we won the Cold War because of our ideas. But at that point, our ideas were fundamental for things like freedom of choice and expression and all the rest. We're not leading the world in terms of ideas of governance right now. We're not. We've kind of lost our way on that as the United States. And the Europeans haven't. By the way, before we close, one thing I, I do really want to be hopeful about as well is we should all thank the Ukrainians for helping remind us that some of the values that we've stood for for a long time, we still kind of want to stand for, and they really do matter. And they're reminding us with their lives and a generation of trauma of 44 million people. And we need to really appreciate that, take a breath or two, and understand just how important that is. Absolutely right. And if you look, by the way, at the way Europe has responded to Ukraine, you also see divisions within Europe, and they actually track with what you were just saying. We all really want to be Estonia these days. They're very innovative on technology. <laughs> they're very innovative. On all. It's a tiny little country. But you know, they're the ones on a GDP basis who have been leading in Ukraine. They were the canaries in the coal mine. Yeah, like almost 1% of the GDP, I think they've provided to the Ukrainians so far. I'm like way ahead of the larger European economies. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. It's a fascinating book. 
I'm glad in the midst of all the shit that's going on that it's an optimistic book. I'm glad that your editors or whomever pushed you towards what are the solutions because whether these solutions happen as you describe them or not, it's important that we think in terms of solutions. And this does that in a way that I haven't seen it. I encourage everybody who's listening to go out and to buy the book. And uh, I, I am sure that uh, everybody who does will benefit from it. And hopefully we'll have you again back here to discuss something else. Absolutely. Love what you're doing, of course, Great. and your friends. So David, thanks for having me. Uh, thank you, Ian. Good luck with it. Bye-bye.